today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, students all over the province are walking out to protest education changes in Ontario. The Jody Wilson Raybalt saga appears never ending. The latest twist? A compromise between her and the Liberal Party fell through after she set conditions on ending the rift. And Bill 66 passed this week in Ontario, and it will have a major effect on workers and their overtime. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. But we want to begin the show talking about what's happening here in Ontario today vis-a-vis education. Now, we know that the Ford government has uh, made a number of announcements over the last couple of weeks about how they want to revamp the education system. Well, today, more than 700 schools and countless students from Hamilton, Halton, Haldeman, Brantford, actually right across the province, are going to be walking out of class this afternoon to protest the changes to the education system here in Ontario. Uh, We know that teachers are upset about this, but, uh, well, the students have a voice in this, too. And uh, on and on it goes. Uh, 1.15 this afternoon, we're told this is going to be happening. So how does it happen here? How does it roll out? Uh, Is it going to be effective? A lot of questions here. We'll try to get some answers. Joining us to talk about this is Penny Deeth, who is a trustee with the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Penny, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you for uh, having me on the show, Bill. Let's Glad ask, uh, first of all, how did the board, you know this is going to come. You knew this was happening today. How does the board prepare this? How are you handling this today? So we are um, obviously working with school administration and staff, um, you know, working through it with the students and uh, and preparing for it. So um, we have been actively, as I said, we, we support student voice. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so staff administration or school administrators have been uh, preparing um, the students and the schools for it. Now, in, in what, what is the preparation? What are you doing here? Are you, are you marshalling this? Are you organizing this? What, what role does the school, what role does the board play in this? No, this, this is not a school um, uh, or a, an HWDSB walkout. This is strictly the students organizing and doing this. Um, and obviously, you know, we support that they have a right to do this. So, um, you know, we have, um, although we support the students, you know, engaging in peaceful and respectful activities, uh, we also have an expectation that students will attend classes scheduled. And, um, and if they leave class or the school, uh, they must do so in a manner sort of consistent with the school's attendance procedure. Now, so, have, have, um, have you had dialogue with any of the students as to exactly what they are going to do today? Well, they are, and, and not every school. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's only, um, I, I believe at this point, four high schools that are organizing. But like I said, you know, more could uh, could rally today because it's, like I said, it's a student-led thing. So it's not something that the board is organizing um, or, or, or doing. So it could be four so schools. Could, it, it could be four schools today. It could be all of them. You don't know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like I said, we're having dialogue in every school, like every, it's the secondary schools, and we are having dialogue with the, um, with the uh, students in all of our schools, but at this point, as far as we're aware, there's only four that are working out or walking out. We did have our student trustees uh, came to us a couple of weeks ago, actually myself and, and the other two student mentors or trustee mentors, and told us that um, this had been a, a hot topic of conversation at the um, Student Senate, and they were trying to uh, determine how they were going to, you know, um, make their voice heard and, um, and, and what would be sort of a way to do it. And, and they, 
knew at that time that there was uh, a lot of different school boards, um, students across, you know, Ontario are, um, are looking at doing a walkout. And, um, and, but they were also asking what was other ways. Their big concern is having their voice, not just their voice heard, but how can they be engaged in the conversation? And that was their biggest frustration is that it would, you know, be nice if there was some consultation or just the way that it's rolled out. If, if the government would have a conversation and help them to understand um, the impact of this and, and how it's and, and what their fears are. So especially around e-learning was actually the, uh, the one that they heard the most feedback and, and, and was the biggest one for the students. And, um, and we talked about, you know, e-learning is, is here to stay, um, but it's, it's the way that it's being, they feel forced on them without having a conversation and they worry about, you know, what about students that don't do well with e-learning and, and, and is it going to impact, you know, their, um, you know, their post-secondary and all this kind of thing. They have a lot of questions, I think is, is what I'm trying to say. And they want those questions, they'd like those questions to be heard and to be answered. So this is their, like I said, this walkout is part of that, you know, listen to us, student voice um, that, that we do support. It's, it's interesting. I mean, some of the, the juxtapositions here, from the, the, I'm talking about the government side here, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're demanding mandatory e-learning. At the same time, there's a cell phone ban going to go in place, too. And I, it just doesn't yeah. seem to... I, we want you to learn this, but we're not going to give you the tool to do it, okay? Not in class anyway. It seems a little ridiculous to me. But l- let me ask you about this. And by the way, I, I, just as an aside, I'm glad you brought that element of this up. Uh, because I've always been impressed with the board's idea that you actually listen to student representatives as well. You understand that they are part of the education process, too. And, uh, and you do talk to them on a regular basis, and, and you're on that subcommittee. That's good to know. I wish the province would adopt something like that, too, and listen to students on some of these issues. But when, 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 when you do meet with them, and when you did meet with them, Penny, uh, you mentioned about some of their concerns. How did you respond to this? Was there a dialogue? Did you, did you counsel them about to do this or to not do this, to walk out? Uh, was that part of the discussion as well? Yep, yep. We we talked. You know, they said that uh, as I as I said, they they were aware that a lot of students they were talking about this walkout. They wanted our student trustees wanted to support that. You know, as their way to express their voice. But we also talked about what are other ways. And um, you know, when we talked about that respectful dialogue, right, and using your words, and and um, and perhaps we talked about maybe meeting with the uh, with the MPP or. Seeing if you could get, you know, students could uh, through OSTA, which is the, um, uh, you know, the, the Student Trustee Association, um, is is have a meeting with, uh, you know, either Lisa Thompson or, um, you know, an MPP or somebody that where they could have dialogue. And we talked again about the importance. If you really want your voice heard, if you just yell and scream and walk out the door, nobody's going to listen. If you really want to catch their ear, it's about being part of the solution and not the problem. And we talked about, you know, what that looked like. So, um, yeah, so we had quite a lot. In fact, they called a meeting with us. Um, our student trustees asked us to meet with them particular about this, this protest. I've seen some of the chatter on social media uh, today, especially since uh, this is the day this is happening. I'm sure it's being mentioned on newscasts uh, all over the place, certainly his on CHML all through the morning. Uh, and some of the feedback I'm hearing from some people on this is, oh, the teachers have set this whole thing up. They're the ones that are moving the kids in this direction. Uh, they're the ones that probably, you know, told them to do this. I'm, I'm just kind of paraphrasing some of the comments I've seen on this. 
Now you you're on that subcommittee. You talk to the to the students on a regular basis. Is is this student driven, or is this because of dialogue, or is this because of some instruction they got from their teachers? No, I would say this is student driven. I mean, they're very aware. Like they, our, our kids are extremely bright, and they follow this. I mean, they they know what's happening. They know how it's affect them. Is there conversation around, you know, with their teachers? Absolutely, you know, trying to find out what this means. But, I mean, we don't know what it means um, 100% yet. We're just starting our, our budget process now, and um, we haven't got all the details yet. But, I mean, you know, do the teachers influence? Yes, as do parents and, and everybody else. But this is students. This is something that is close and dear to them. They don't want to lose... Um, you know, some of their uh, classes or some of their um, different opportunities. Um, and and they're, they're worried about that, the, the choices. And, and like I said, when they spoke to me about the e-learning, they really worried about, like, they know students that would struggle with that. Now, one of our student trustees, she, she takes an e-learning course, so she gets it. Like, we talked about the positives as well, right? And what are the positives around e-learning and some of these different things that are being introduced? Because it's not all negative, but... But like I said, it's they, they're not being told this. They're not being understanding um, how it's going to be rolled out and how it impacts them. So, Well, one, you know, one of the reactions I had when I saw some of these comments, uh, I, I got the sense that there's almost a presupposition here that, oh, come on, these are just students. They don't, they don't pay attention to any of this stuff. And I know oh that to God. be, you know, I, I, oh. our kids certainly do. And we had this, this, a discussion about all kinds of education things. Uh, through social media, they do pay attention to this. And they, yes. they do understand that there are going to be ramifications. I mean, there's a, a dialogue I know going on in schools, not just here in Hamilton, but all over the place about the sex ed curriculum. Uh, bec- mm-hmm. And I've talked to students about that and, and, and seen some of their feedback, and even something as class size, which some pe- may seem abstract to people. And the reality is, is they. I, now I'm not going to say every student's engaged, but an awful lot of them are. And you hear that, I mm-hmm. guess, when you meet with the subcommittee. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, we have uh, we have not only a secondary senate, but we have an elementary senate, and we get representation uh, representation from just about all our schools on it. And yes, I mean, they're engaged. They want to know. They want to know how it's impacting them. They want to know what it looks like. Um, and these kids are so socially aware. Like, they, they care about those students who don't have a voice or who maybe, you know, maybe don't speak up as much. And they're constantly talking about how do we hear from, make sure that we hear from every student. And, and so, no, I mean, they are socially, and like I said, that's the impact where they were talking with the early e-learning about them worrying that how is it impact that those kids that maybe are not um, prepared for e-learning or not, that's not a good way for them to learn. So they want some flexibility is what they're asking for. And, and again, you know, there's their voice heard for them to be consulted, um, you know, for them to be part of the process um, for this. So, I mean, no, I, I, this is definitely our students. Uh, the education minister has uh, responded to the, this whole concept, this whole idea of the walkout today. I'm sure you've heard some of the comments, Penny, uh, suggesting that this is not constructive. Uh, the quote that's uh, making the rounds these days from the minister uh, says, I need to remind uh, the teachers and our school board that schools are a place of learning and we owe it to our parents to ensure that students are safe and they are learning at school every day. Uh, 
do you feel that that what you're doing and what the students are doing, or what the boards are doing about this, uh, is is in line with what the minister is suggesting here? I I I, I kind of wish I, I like her statement. I think it makes great. It's it, it's a rather a, a bizarre <laughs> statement to make, given the fact that these are the ones that are making all the changes to the education system. Yeah, this is the kettle well, calling. This is the kettle calling the pot <laughs> black, isn't it? Well, it is a place of learning. Absolutely. I mean, a hundred percent. Um, so let's teach them, you know, before we, we, um, roll these things out, let's teach them and, and help them understand uh, what this is all about. So, and absolutely, like I said, you know, we have had those conversations about making sure respectful and how to have your voice heard appropriately. And, you know, and this is what they decided to do. We, we talked about different options, like I said, meeting with the MPP or, or asking to meet with the Ministry of Ed. Uh, we spoke about those things, but this was something that they wanted to do. So, and like I said, it's not um, board, um, it's not a board event, but we are, uh, we're preparing for it, as I said, with, with conversations with our superintendents and with our staff um, at the schools. So, and information will be shared with parents for those who are absent. And there's no staff supervision, too, so just that parents are aware that, like I said, this is strictly the, the students rallying and um, and doing this. Where are they going once they walk out of the classroom? <laughs> I, I imagine it's going to be different with each school um, where they are going, but I know, like I said, administration obviously have talked to um, students about this, and um, uh, and obviously safety is a, is a concern, especially for, with our younger students. So um, I don't know where exactly each school is. Obviously, they're going to be different, and they'll have a safety plan. You're going to hear. I mean, as a trustee, I, I don't need to tell you this, Penny. Uh, you are the, the the lightning rod for this. I mean, if parents are supportive of this, they're going to call you. Uh, and mm-hmm. if they're opposed to this, uh, taxpayers, parents, whomever are going to call you. Uh, you're going to get calls, if you haven't already, that are going to say, look, at your job as a board should be to tell them not to do this and to punish them if they do. How do you respond to that? Well, like I said, we have, um, they know, like I said, we've been talking with them about what they can and can't do. And like I said, if they walk out, like any student, if any student leaves the the building, a secondary student, um, we've told them that they have to do the, you know, attendance procedure, which is sign out um, with parent guardian. Um, you know, we have have told them that, you know, we, we stay that, that line, but um you know, if they're, obviously, if they're going to do this, we want to make sure that they're safe. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it's a tough one, Bill. It it really is. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you want to support their right to have a voice and be respectful, and and um, and show that right because that's what we teach. I mean, you talk about it being a learning environment. I mean, that's that's what we teach our our school our students. Right? They have a right to civic engagement. And we encourage them to use their voices, you know, in a positive and respectful way. Well, look at I mean, what, I don't know how many times I've had conversations on this show over the years about things like low voter turnout uh, at, at levels of, of, of every kind, municipal, federal, and provincial, when it comes to elections, for instance. Uh, exactly. what, what you're doing here is cultivating an interest in, in, in issues, and, and that's a good thing. I mean, we're hoping that those generations that are going through the education system right now are going to be better citizens, and, and maybe we'll get to that 70 or 80% voter turnout like other countries do right now. But if that, that's only going to happen if they get engaged at this level. Uh, whether you agree or disagree with, with what they're protesting here, the fact that they're doing it and they're engaged, I think you have to take away as a positive here. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Penny, we'll see how it goes today. Uh, Thank you so much for the time and for the clarification.
You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Penny Deeth, of course, trustee of the Hamilton District School Board. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a bizarre story, uh, and, and it gets more bizarre with almost each passing day. And we're, of course, talking about the Jody Wilson-Rebalt, uh, Prime Minister, SNC-Lavalin. Uh, everybody's thrown into this mix. Well, apparently a story today indicates that when it came to brokering a compromise between the Liberal Party and Jody Wilson-Rebalt, uh, the talks failed uh, when the former Attorney General actually set conditions to try to end the rift. Joining us to talk about this is Christo Avalis, uh, Social Science and uh, Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow, uh, history, of course, at the University of Toronto. Christo, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, listen, for those that may not know all the intricacies of what happens in politics and the way politics works, uh, even the backroom stuff, uh, the fact that you have a minister, and in, in this case an aggrieved minister, uh, seemingly dictating terms to the prime minister to say, I'll stay if you do this, 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 and for me, is rather unusual, isn't it? You know, if it's if it's not unusual, it's it's certainly not something we see openly. Like you know, for all we know, maybe this has happened before. Maybe it happens more frequently than we'd like to think, but uh, it often gets uh, stayed under wraps. But it is something special. I think it shows one thing above all, really, which is that Jody Wilson-Raybould wasn't, as a lot of liberal partisans might want to put it, trying to uh, stage a coup, and that really every step of the way here, she was trying to find some sort of way to stay in the cabinet and try to find some sort of way of finding a deal that works for everybody. So I think this, I think uh, a lot of liberals are, are, are sharing this information, trying to say that, you know, she was trying to make a power move, when I think really what she was trying to do was, as she said in her audio recording, protect the prime minister. Yeah, and I've seen some of those stories on social media, too, indicating that there's, uh, there's some sort of conspiracy going on uh, between her and, and, and Phil Pott and, and, and a few other people, I guess, within the party. Uh, to try to undermine the prime minister. And I, I guess you're always going to hear that sort of thing when you get conflict like this. The other side of it, though, the fact that these negotiations even took place, uh, and, and it wasn't just the prime minister, although apparently he did have a hand in this himself, personally, we had discussions with uh, Wilson Raybould on this, is, is uh, the, at least it looks like the prime minister's office at least understood the gravity of, and, and, the, and the consequences uh, that would happen if, in fact, she left in, in a public fashion like this, how it was going to hurt their brand. No, I think so. I think they realized that perhaps that, you know, this sort of got away from them, that, you know, she was perhaps more serious about her concerns than they initially thought. And then, you know, they tried to do a course correct, uh, you know, and it, it obviously didn't work because I think at the end of the day, part of this was about communication and optics. But I think in some ways it was really about a fundamental disagreement on core matters like the SNC case, which is that, you know, is the goal of the Liberal Party to preserve law and order, or is it to defend a company that's made historically illegal donations to that party? And Jody Wilson-Raybould will say, well, we're going to stand with law and order. And Justin Trudeau said, well, we're going to stand with the company that's made illegal donations to our party. And, and I think there, you, couldn't, you couldn't square that circle. Uh, and that's why the, the, you know, something had to happen. And whether you agree with it or not, you know, I was going to end up with Jody Wilson-Raybould leaving or Justin Trudeau kicking her out. And, and, and Justin Trudeau kicked her out. And there's a companion story to this, by the way. I'm sure you've seen a bit of it, just to bring our listeners up to speed. Uh, and, and, and it circles around the, the deputy minister who worked with uh, Wilson-Raybould, of course, when she was the attorney general. Apparently there's a little-known clause that the government could have uh, used here uh, that could have given SNC-Lavalin some contracts, some federal contracts, even if they were convicted in this. Uh, it's, it's sort of a dispensation sort of a thing, and it might have been a little bit controversial, but it was there, which, which kind of makes you think that maybe this whole thing didn't have to happen if everybody was, was on the same page. 
Yeah, no, I think to a certain degree, and I'm you know I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, I'm not versed on corporate law and the, and the, the specifics of a DPA, so I don't want to go too too much of a fine grain. But I think that in general, a lot of people have been asking, especially you know a couple weeks after the nine thousand jobs claim came down, asking for more details. There, where did that come from? Is that a genuine claim? Is that you know uh, a bit of puffery, but the underlying uh, truth is there, or is it or is it something that's sort of been made up to justify? retroactively the actions and from where i stand frankly i don't i don't know it seems to me like this wasn't quite the death knell to snc that maybe it was portrayed by jerry butts early on in the process and again it raises other questions too i mean you're you 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 know being in hamilton you know justin trudeau would say that this was about protecting workers and pensioners yet we know that this government hasn't done enough to protect pensioners at stelco and a local mp in hamilton has has had kindly told steel workers and pensioners to uh, F off. So, I mean, it, nothing is passing the smell test, I think, in this, this government in that sense. And, and, I, and, I, and I kind of feel like, you know, as we get more and more information, it seems like there were more and more ways that SNC could have wiggled their way around this, even if Jody Wilson-Raybould's, uh, you know, uh, denial of the DPA w- w- was helpful. I, I got to tell you, Christo, <laughs> that point was not lost on the steel workers. We heard from them uh, when this story broke a few weeks ago, and that was the, hey, what about us? We've been asking for the last 10 years for, for pension protection, and uh, yet SNC-Lavalin seems to get it. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a story that's, that's still circulating and, and still percolating around here. Let, let's talk a little bit about, well, some of the uh, alleged demands here. And, and, and I think there's a pretty strong consensus, actually, from the PMO uh, and the, the media sources here that this is kind of what she wanted. So, well, the first one is, is rather obvious, I guess, given uh, her testimony over the last couple of weeks. Uh, she wanted the prime minister to fire Butts and, uh, and Wardick, uh, who's the Privy Council, and also senior advisor Matthew Bouchard, who played a prominent role in uh, the testimony from Wilson-Raybould. Uh, n- didn't happen. Uh, two of them have officially resigned. Uh, it, would that have been good enough? Or, it, it, the has, does it have to be a public execution? In other words, the boss firing that individual as opposed to letting them resign? I mean, I'm not sure. Generally in politics, people are allowed to resign. And so when you're in a negotiation, I think you would, if you were at a bargaining table, you would say, well, look, I'm not going to fire him, but he will quote-unquote resign. And you think that would accept that. I mean, again, I, I, I don't know if, if, if what, what, what the, the veracity of these claims are 100%, but if they are true, it seems like, you know, with Wernick at least, it does seem like he played a role here in a sort of inappropriately partisan manner in trying to interfere here. And again, he's there to represent you know, the link between the civil service and the, and the elected officials. Yet in that uh, recording, he made it very clear that Jody Wilson-Raybould needs to stop thinking as the attorney general and start thinking as a member of cabinet, which is to stay, start thinking about this SNC affair politically and not legally. But again, Michael Warnick has no position in making political calculations. He's not a partisan figure. He's put the, so I think at least with him, you know, he's demonstrated, you know, that he was letting partisanship affect his official role. And I think the path was for him to resign. And I mean, with Butts, I mean, I think it's that's that's a case of, you know, if the fundamental relationship between Wilson-Raybould and Butts isn't working and Trudeau needs to pick one of the two, I think, that you know, there, there's a point to be made that one of the two has to go. Uh, oddly enough, both of them are gone now. So I don't know if, if that worked. Well, clearly not, and, and I guess given the relationship, I mean, Trudeau and Butts have been buddies, I guess, since university, you would think that, that Trudeau would get, try to give him a soft landing as opposed to, you know, the public execution of saying, I'm firing this guy. No, no, well, yeah. Whether, I mean, whether it's you know, right or wrong, I mean, I, I'm sure that played into it. No, no, certainly. Well, there's the friendship there, but, you know, there's this also, again, it's, 
you know, often people are often given a chance to resign. People are often given a chance to step aside. It preserves their own dignity. It's like, you know, you can't fire me. I quit. There's an element of that. But it also, you know, it's, it could be Gerald Butts doing something for the prime minister. By him resigning, it, force, it, it removes the responsibility of the prime minister to pull the trigger. It allows him to kind of control the narrative and therefore help out with this. It sort of gave him a freedom to speak uh, in, this, in a, a lot of these early testimonies that he might not have had if he was currently in the position he was in, you know, as, as Trudeau's kind of chief advisor. Now, again, whether that ultimately help them or not is another question but the reality is is that uh, yeah I, I think that the personalities here and and just the kind of respectability of of political firings uh played a role well, by the way according to this reporting that, uh, that we're talking about here uh these negotiations happen after she was demoted uh, and, and taken away from the ag role uh because one of the uh, the other things that she brought up uh, during these discussions was that her replacement uh, david lametti who's the now attorney general uh, would not overrule the director of public prosecutions, Kathleen Roussel, uh, about the SN Lavalin file. So she was she was adamant in sticking to her. I mean, she's always said all along that she was doing this on a principled basis. That seems to indicate that she wasn't going to give that up. No, I think that's a clear point. I think like that was a sort of raison d'être. That seems to be the uh, the impetus for this conflict. It wasn't about Scott Bryson leaving. It wasn't about Jody Wilson-Raybould not speaking French. It was about a fundamental disagreement on the SNC Lavalin question and whether or not the, the, the deferred prosecution agreement um, should be respect or, or, or the, whether the, the, the decision by the, the prosecutor should be respected with regards to giving a DPA or not. Um, and I think that, again, that underlines a couple things. One, I think she was trying to protect the prime minister and she knew this would look bad. And I think she was trying to protect the prime minister in the sense that, you know, this would be damaging to the liberal brand. And if I'm going to be part of this party, I have to feel comfortable with some of its key decisions. And maybe she's saying, well, look, if you change, uh, you know, if you know, if you, if you overrule my decision here, it's not just about pride and ego. Or like, it's my decision. It's, it's about, well, I don't want to associate myself with that vision for, for law and order in Canada. The other condition here, and this is maybe one of the more important ones, because it's been mentioned consistently, and actually even Jane Philpott in her uh, her uh, rationale and, and dissertation after she was booted out of the cabinet also mentioned this, uh, an apology from the Prime Minister. Uh, according to this reporting again, uh, Wilson Raybould wanted the uh, Prime Minister to publicly, or even just in caucus, uh, tell uh, admit that his office acted inappropriately in its attempts to convince her to change her mind on this issue. Uh, to our, all, our, all of our knowledge, I guess, right, that never happened, did it? No, and I think, frankly, like, that would have gone a long way. It might have gone a long way of ending this whole affair if Trudeau would have just apologized to Canadians and said, look, you know, we have conflicting interests here. We have corporate interests that are very important to us in the Liberal Party. We are a party of, of corporate Canada to a certain degree. We have interests about protecting jobs and, and stuff, whether, whether, whether those claims are, are true or not. And we have, you know, uh, interest in protecting law and order. And he's like, in this case, the, you know, the tug of war between the three were unbalanced and perhaps put pressure on Jody Wilson-Raybould that was inappropriate. Although, although, and again here, the risks are relatively minimal, I would say, because obviously the denial path hasn't worked. And Jody Wilson-Raybould herself has said, at least from her perspective, that she doesn't think anything illegal happened. So it's not like Justin Trudeau is going to be getting up on a stage and admitting a crime. He would just maybe admit a temporary lapse of ethical judgment. And, you know, maybe that would have ripped the, um, the, the Band-Aid off uh, 
you know, right at the beginning, and we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about this story anymore. And so I think Jody Wilson rabled again there. The reality is, is that yeah, it's probably about you know getting an apology for how she was treated. But I think honestly, and it's, it's it's at least in part saying like, look, we feel this is the best path forward, not just for our relationship but also for the, the party's electoral chances in the fall. Well, we thought we were going to get that apology. What was it about a month ago, that Friday, when he summoned the media uh, to the press uh, gallery in Ottawa? And, of course, everybody thought, well, this is going to be the apology. And uh, I, I, think he only, he, I, I think he said he was sorry that this whole thing happened, but he didn't actually admit that his staff had any role in, in how it unfurled in, in the fashion that it did. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I remembered some of the rumors going around about well, what would the nature of that conference be. You know, I'm not surprised there's no apology. I think, you know, this the way this affair rolled out has been really troubling for the government. Uh, a lot of their supporters on social media and stuff have sort of denied, denied, denied the reality of the base allegations here. And I feel the Liberals, um, they probably think they're in too deep. From the beginning, they basically called the Globe and Mail and, and Bob Fife fake news. That was the original narrative here, that this was a fake story with one anonymous source, and it shouldn't at all be trusted. So once you start from that range, there's no going back into apologizing. You've already basically denied that the whole thing happened. So I think the government was in too deep, and, 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 and I don't know if they saw, uh, from their perspective, a way out. I, I want to go back to your point that you made just a minute ago, and it's, it's maybe one of the early lessons that we all learn in elementary school or from our parents. Uh, is if something goes wrong, own it and apologize for it and try to move on from there. Uh, deny, deny, deny. Uh, I, I don't think has ever worked in politics, has it, Christo? Well, I mean, you know, there, there, there are times when it's worked. I mean, we look at this Ontario election. Doug Ford denied, denied, denied giving out people platforms and basically hid his intentions from voters, and, and he was rewarded with a supermajority of, of, of seats. I mean, lying in politics can work, but if you're going... but but. You know, I think there is something to be said for if you know you're caught red-handed, and there's something to be said for owning it and, and, and moving forward. And I think a lot of people thought when, they, when the 9,000 jobs claim was, was not being criticized, when that was sort of seen as, as we, we were all talking 9,000 jobs versus ethics, and people weren't saying, well, is it even 9,000 jobs versus ethics, or is it just ethics versus, you know, bailing out a company? And at that stage, a lot of people said, well, what Justin Trudeau should have done is she should have come out and said, look, we, 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 we chose jobs and we're proud to do so and we do so again. And we're sorry that Miss Wilson-Raybould uh, didn't accept that, but that's, that's where our government is. And some people thought at that stage, if he would have done that, that would have caused you know, a couple weeks of, of uproar, a question period, but it would have died down. Now, that's retroactive. Who knows if that's true? But that was at least uh, what some people thought was an alternative to... As you know, the, 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 the deny, deny, deny line. Uh, another case of woulda, coulda, shoulda, I guess, in politics. We'll see. Yeah. I, I don't think it's over yet. Crystal, thanks for the time today. Great talking with you again. Thanks for having me. Take care. Crystal Avalos, of course, from U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, we told you about Bill 66, which has uh, already been passed by the Ontario legislature. It's uh, instituted, obviously, by the Ford government. Uh, essentially, this is going to have an impact on just about everybody who works at an hourly wage uh, and likes to make a couple of extra bucks or, you know, is paid a few extra bucks uh, because they do an overtime shift. Ontario employers' uh, duty to pay workers overtime just got a little bit lighter following passage of uh, this Bill 66, which uh, observers say actually reduces some of the protections that had been in place 
uh, around excess hours and uh, being compensated for those. Now, joining us to talk about it is uh, Lior Samfiro, of course, from Samfiro to Markin LLP. Uh, of course, you can hear them every weekend here on 900 CHML. And wanted to, Lior, first of all, thanks for joining us. I'm glad you had some time to talk to us and maybe uh, shed some light on what's going on. Always my pleasure, Bill. Talk to us a little bit about uh, a couple of phrases that, that I've seen here in the, in the government's explanation about this. Uh, and, and I guess maybe the one that we need to talk about right off the bat is something called overtime averaging. What, what's that all about? Yeah, overtime averaging. So the general rule in Ontario is that you get paid overtime if you work more than 44 hours a week. So anything over 44 hours a week, you get time and a half. And interestingly, and some people don't realize this, is that this applies to both uh, hourly and salaried employees. So you still get time and a half if you work more than one and a half, uh, oh, sorry, if you work more than 44 hours a week. Now, for some employers, they may think, well, wait a second, that's unfair because, yes, we may have you work more than 44 hours, but usually you only work 35 hours, so the one time we ask you to work more than 44 hours, we should have to pay. Well, the, the way that this is dealt with is an employer is allowed to enter into an averaging agreement with an employee that would allow hours to be averaged over a specific period of time, let's say two weeks. So over that two-week period, if the average is more than 44 hours, then you get your overtime. But if it's not more than 44 hours, even though you may have worked more than 44 hours on a given week, you're not going to get overtime. Now, in the past, up until this, these changes happened, in order for that averaging to happen, uh, the employer needed to do two things. Number one is it needed to get the employee's uh, written consent to have an averaging period. And number two, that agreement had to be approved by the Ministry of Labor. So the Ministry of Labor had to say, yes, we are fine with you doing this uh, averaging system instead of just flat out paying anytime someone is working more than 44 hours a week. This new bill eliminated that second requirement. Therefore, employers now no longer have to have the government approve or the Ministry of Labor approve that over uh, the averaging agreement. The only thing that's required is the employee's consent. So uh, arguably now it's easier for the employer to, uh, to, to have an averaging period. And obviously, all things being equal for the employee, it's better not to have the averaging simply because that guarantees you that any time you work more than 44 hours a week, you get paid overtime regardless of what happened the week before and what's going to happen the following week, though. All right, a couple of questions about this. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the the qualification they see in here that they can do it now as long as the employee agrees to this. Uh, that's really putting the employee between a rock and a hard place. If you say, no, don't do this, where does that leave them? Yeah, you're, you are absolutely right with one caveat. So so you're right there that most employees are going to feel very uncomfortable to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this. Uh, and they're going to feel the pressure. But there's two things we need to remember. Number one is an employer actually is not allowed to threaten, to punish, to require an employee to do this. And if they do, that is in itself a breach of the Employment Standards Act. There would be legal recourse and penalties that are available if the employer puts the employee in that position. But the second most interesting thing is that even though up until now the government had to approve it, honestly, Bill, I can tell you from years of doing this, this was just a rubber stamping. So the government always essentially approved the averaging as long as it wasn't insane, uh, so eliminating that requirement, I don't know, is going to really change that much. It's going to eliminate some red tape and potentially allow the employer to get these agreements in place faster. But it was very rare for the government to say, oh, gosh, no, we, we're not going to allow you to do the averaging. So for most people, while 
you know, they may feel that pressure. I don't know that the reality is really going to change. I don't know that the employers are going to necessarily be better off than what they are currently. But I guess the way I was looking at this, Lior, is uh, with that that caveat that you, that you've just mentioned here. Uh, if if I if my if my boss comes to me and does this, and I say no, I don't want you doing that. I don't want my overtime. Come on, that's that's the deal we, I thought we had here. Uh, it, it, is that going to create a, a conflicting relationship between the employee and the ploy, employer at that stage? I mean, you know, am, am I going to be on thin ice? You, 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 it probably will. And even though the employer cannot flat out say to you, "Oh, I'm going to fire you because of that," or "I'm going to punish you," we both know that the employer can find other ways to to uh, do things without it being explicit. Yeah, then we're going down the road of constructive dismissal, then, aren't we? Constructive dismissal, you know, potentially things such as you know workplace harassment, etc. Those things can happen. But I don't know that that's that what you just described, which, by the way, does happen. I don't know if that's because of this bill, only because even up until now, the employer could still do that to the employee because the employee's consent was always needed, uh, regardless of that, that rubber stamping by the government. But certainly, any time an employer asks an employee to do something, even if the employee is legally allowed to say no, when the employee says no, whether directly or indirectly, uh, there may be repercussions, which, of course, illegal, but sometimes uh, just the, the way it is when the employers have more of the leverage, if you know what I mean. To, now, to go back to this whole concept about overtime averaging agreements, though, uh, I, I know it's been characterized now uh, by some of the people who have looked at this bill, Lior, and say, this is basically telling Ontario workers, uh, you, well, you're going to work more, but you're not going to get the money for it. You're not going to get paid what you're used to getting paid. In other words, work, work more, but get less. Is that a fair characterization? So as it relates to over, overtime averaging, I actually don't believe that to be uh, the case. And I, I don't believe that to be the case only because, as I said, the rubber stamping would have happened in any event. So it allows the employer to get to the end goal faster, but it doesn't really change the fact that they would have gone there anyway. I actually think the bill does something else that hasn't been talked about as much, which could be a problem, and it could actually result in people getting paid less, especially salaried employees, and that is uh, this. And in that in the past, uh, up until uh, this new bill, an employer needed the government's approval to have a work week for more than 40, 48 hours a week. So an employer could only require an employee to work up to 48 hours. Anything beyond that, you needed the employee's agreement and the ministry's approval. Now, the ministry, the, the new bill eliminates that approval, so the, the government no longer needs to approve that. But here's where the interesting part is. When the government used to approve that excess hours of work, traditionally they never approved anything over 60 hours a week. Right now, because the government doesn't have to approve it, an employer can require or create a work week that's more than 60 hours a week, 65, 70 hours, for example, and the employee would have to work that. And for some employees who may potentially be exempt from uh, overtime, there, there's a, you know, a number of employees, managers, IT professionals, uh, certain other professionals that don't get overtime, and they're on salary, they may be required to work 70 hours a week, still get the same weekly salary. So that is actually something that this bill does uh, intentionally or unintentionally uh, in making life more difficult for Ontario workers. You mentioned uh, when you're trying to explain this to us, and, and you did it in such a great fashion, Lior, uh, about uh, the, the pay period time, the, the overtime averaging agreement, and you used the example of over two weeks. Now, my understanding is that uh, there's a lot more leeway there. They can uh, actually, they can p- move this out and, and extend this for four weeks now, which is actually going to be beneficial to the employer, isn't it? Because, I mean, in a, in, a, in a contracted amount of time, you might still be able to qualify for a bit of overtime, but over a month, 
uh, they can even those hours out and pretty much eliminate overtime payments. Yeah. So if you think about it in a month, if I have two weeks that I work more than 44 hours, in the normal way, I'd get overtime on both those weeks, which could be substantial because it's time and a half. But if the other two weeks I work a bit less just because of work volume, I, uh, it normally wouldn't have mattered well, right now if the averaging period is four weeks, which an employer is allowed to do. The net effect is I don't get any overtime. So, yeah, by, by allowing that four weeks, all you need for that is the employee's consent, which, as you've said and I have agreed, an employee is almost going to give that consent, uh, then it does allow for employers to, to save quite a bit of money on overtime, and, and employees, the net effect of that is will make less overtime. Now, the cynic in me would suggest uh, that, that okay, if I'm making a, a fair bit of money, or, or potentially a fair bit of money in those first two weeks of that pay period, uh, and, and I'm qualifying for that, uh, a, a, a not-so-ethical employer is going to cut my hours back in the last two weeks to make sure that I fall below that average. Yeah, and that's exactly uh, what, what some employers do. And the, the, agree, the idea behind the averaging was to simply allow for unusual situations where, yeah, overtime is not usual, but we had this one big project that required a lot of work, but it's not usual. Employers have been taking advantage of that often by, by manipulating hours so that over the averaging period, they're saving money, they don't have to pay overtime. Uh, and keep in mind, though, and I want to remind our, our listeners today that an employee can say no, and if they're aware of the employer taking any measures against them, penalizing them in any way, they can apply for relief from the Ministry of Labor. That is certainly something that the employer is not allowed to do. Yeah, because if I'm in a situation like that where I've done, like as you mentioned, 44 and, and maybe 48 or 40 or whatever it is, and I'm over the limit of those first two weeks, uh, there's a potential for me to go in there to work in the third week and find out I've only got 18 hours. Yeah, and I actually think that employers that use those averaging agreements are likely to do something, or if not to that extent, but certainly to, to a certain extent, to eliminate those hours. And uh, it, it is a risk. It is a risk. And an employee does have the ability. And by the way, these averaging agreements are for a specific period of time. Once they expire, the employer has to enter into a new agreement with the employees, although they can be long. They could be uh, you know, they, they could be for a long time. So if the employee does that for a while and they see that they don't like it, that the employer is taking advantage, the next time the employer comes to them and says, I want to average, the employee can say, you know, I've learned my lesson. I don't want to do that again. And they could potentially re- refuse at that point. Leo, what does this do to existing contracts? So with respect to existing contracts, existing contracts generally uh, incorporate the terms of the Employment Standards Act, so they're, uh, they're incorporated into those contracts. So arguably, an employer is allowed uh, to do this. Now, in some situations, if an employer uh, is, uh, has established a, a rule by its conduct that it always pays overtime over 44 hours a week, it doesn't matter uh, what happens the other weeks, and now they say, well, wait a second, we want to take advantage of this and we're going to require the employees to sign these agreements. If, if undue pressure is put on the employee, if the employee feels like he or she has no choice but to sign this overtime averaging agreement, this could be a constructive dismissal situation when the employee is face, facing this undue pressure for the reasons that you've said that most people will feel compelled. If you are feeling compelled to do something that you've never had to do before that's going to result in a loss of income for you, you may be able to treat that situation as a constructive dismissal and leave with severance. That's that's an interesting twist on this that I, I before our conversation today I hadn't actually heard anybody talk about is is that if if that contract that I have in place right now uh, was drawn up within the guise of the Employment Standards Act as it stood then, 
but they've modified the Employment Standards Act, that automatically impacts this contract. I mean, there's going to be a lot of disgruntled employees here. Sure, they're going to be. But remember that an employer and an employee cannot contract out of the Employment Standards Act. They can't agree to terms that are worse than the Employment Standards Act, but they can certainly agree to terms that are better. So if you and your employer have established a practice that provides you, the employee, with better terms than what's in the Employment Standards Act, the employer should not and cannot go, well, now that the Employment Standards Act is more favorable, now I'm going to go back and change the terms to make it worse for you, employee. Anytime an employer makes or insists or, or puts pressure on an employee to make terms of employment worse, though those words, constructive dismissal, sh- should immediately come to mind, and that employee may be able to say, no, I've had enough, I would rather not be here, employer, if you're going to treat me that way, I'll leave with my compensation and move on to a different place. This, uh, this is going to be a sticking point in, in contract negotiations, I would think, between unions and, and, and companies now. Oh, gosh, yeah. It, 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 these issues are, are already a uh, sticking point with uh, unions and, and collective bargaining all the time. So with these added rules, it's going to make that bargaining process that's more, that much more interesting and potentially more explosive. Uh, and it's going to take some time before we see how these uh, provisions are, in fact, impacting employees. But there's certainly potential there for them to, uh, to make life uh, for employees worse or, or to certainly affect their income in any way. And unions, are, of course, are going to try hard for their members to try to uh, yeah, reduce the impact by negotiating favorable terms. And time will tell if they're going to be able to do that. Well, in that scenario, and, and, and the fact that, as you say, it may actually increase the, the possibilities of empl- uh, constructive dismissal charges, you, you may have, going to end up at the end of the day here, you're going to have to hire more lawyers, I think, Lior. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm ready for it if needed, no problem. Okay, listen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the clarification. Thanks, Will. My pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Of course, Lior Simfuro from Simfuro to Marketing. You can hear them with the law, the legal show, of course, every Saturday here on CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.